You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey folks, great to have you with us today. Remember, the place for a man, for a woman completing all their powers is in the fight, the spiritual fight, and right now, today, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We've got a rendezvous with destiny. All right, really, really good to have you with us. Listen, folks, I'm uh, I'm excited about today's program. We started something last week, if you remember, uh, kind of an executive summary of a book of the Bible for discipleship. And we're going to do the same thing today. Uh, last week we did Genesis. Today we're going to do Exodus. And we'll talk about our special guests and who's going to do that with us here in just a moment. But as you know, we uh, really like to cover just a, you know, some fun issues, uh, some some issues to think about before we begin our um, our main gist of the program. So I, uh, I saw th- three articles I just want to bring up very quickly today. One of them was uh, by a lady named Virginia Thomas. This is actually doc- Dr. Thomas, Dr. Virginia Thomas, who wrote in Psychology Today about eight ways to embrace solitude. Now, we're going to go talk about all eight of the ways, but I thought it was fascinating. She says, there's no denying that we are social creatures, yet being alone is also part of the human condition. So this whole thing is about how we need from time to time, to be alone. And she says, many people struggle with being alone. And some find it boring, lonely, anxiety-producing. Uh, and furthermore, she makes a case in here that one of the dynamics of our culture is that we really do affirm uh, extroverts and not so much introverts. But she says, nonetheless, it's important to introvert <laughs> at least part of your day. And so she says, I got six or eight, eight things in terms of skill, I'm not so sure skill was the best way to articulate these eight things. Let me go to number four. Uh, she says, skill four, make time to be alone. And when she said that, when she wrote that down in psychology today, I thought, wait a minute. I mean, I think most Christians could and should affirm that right there, that every day we ought to make time to be alone, but it's not just alone apart from God, but alone with God. So listen, the Christian faith has traditionally taught that every serious Christian ought to have a, what we've we've always called a quiet time. I'm not so sure it has to be quiet, but a time alone with your Bible, talking to Jesus, talking to the Father, talking to the Spirit, talking in such a way that, listen, you're building a personal relationship with God. And you got to take time to be alone in order to do that. Now, she's making the case in this Psychology Today article, it's necessary for good mental health. So she, again, is talking about eight skills. And she says, skill six is validate the need for solitude. And I would say there is a serious need for you to be alone every day with the Lord. And there's a need in such a way that I think we've gotten away from it, and I think we're weaker because of it. Now, you remember, I think we've already brought this up on uh, this broadcast before, Life-Changing Discipleship, that E. Stanley Jones once said that the greatest need in America is for a 
time alone with God every day. That that is a serious need, and it's a need that we've gotten away from. And I think most pastors, I think the vast majority of pastors have gotten away from that. And if the pastors have, you know that the lay people have. But we need to regain that. We need to teach people in our congregations how you can have that time alone with God, what it should mean, and how we're going to come away from it better. I think mental health, emotional health, but spiritual health is, of course, what we're after. You know how, you have to know how to do it, and we need to train people on how to spend time alone with the Lord. Now, she goes all the way down now to six, uh, skill eight. Now, we haven't covered them all. This is the third skill, but the skill eight is know when to exit solitude. Actually, I like that too. Listen, we're not monastery people folks, we're supposed to exit solitude and exit a quiet time and enter into life being fortified by that alone time with the Lord. Dr. Virginia Thomas writes about eight ways to embrace solitude. I will suggest to you, it's very, very important for you and I to have a time alone with the Lord every day. Call it solitude if you want. Make sure you take your Bible, <laughs> make sure you take a prayer dynamic with you, and make sure you're with the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost when you do it. Then this, I uh, saw this in, uh, let me see here, I think this is a, oh yeah, uh, John Stone Street, I believe, sent this out, but he, he talks about something that uh, uh, Katie uh, Shellnut wrote about in Christianity Today. This is interesting to me and kind of counterintuitive. Evangelicals under 40 are twice as likely as their seniors to want more substance from the pulpit. Referring to a new survey on church satisfaction by a group called Gray Matter Research Group. Not only do three in 10 evangelicals want more in-depth teaching, but the strong majority are happy with how their church handles even tougher topics like giving or politics. Uh, and it kind of correlates, they say, with a with a Gallup poll back in 2017, which showed that 83% of Protestants consider learning about Scripture as the main reason they attend church. But again, evangelicals under 40 are twice as likely than their seniors to want more substance from the pulpit. Watering it down just isn't unfruitful or unwise. It's a bad retention strategy. They want good teaching, biblical teaching. They want more of it and more time in it. Fascinating stuff. And that's, again, by young evangelicals. All right. And item number three. All right. We're in February, and I don't know when you'll listen to this podcast. You might listen to this podcast when it's in August. But right now, we're at the top of February. And there's an article comes out that talks about uh, Black History Month, which February is typically set aside for a lot of people to sort of concentrate on African-American history. I happen to think, well, well a lot of African-Americans don't like this. They think that it ought to be scattered throughout the entire year, and that's kind of my view as well. Why do we have to have a month alone when, in fact, we ought to be doing this all the time? Uh, and not, not just African-American, all kinds of history we ought to be doing it ethnically. But having said that, I love the stories that come out during Black History Month. I love the stories about G, uh, uh, you know, George Washington Carver or, or Fannie Lou Hamer. You don't know her, probably. Frederick Douglass. Remember his 1852 address? What to the slave is the 4th of July? It was a great question then. And 
Thank God that he preached it and preached it long and hard. Of course, we're talking about Martin Luther King Jr., etc. I love the fact that in Jackson, Mississippi, where I live, that's where my home is, Jackson, Mississippi, that you have the number one civil rights museum in the nation. And I tell you what, a walk through that uh, both enlightens you and breaks your heart. One of the ways it enlightens, though, is to look around at all the heroes that really showed their true selves during those that civil rights era. And one of my heroes is a, a lady named Fannie Lou Hamer. They called her Ms. Hamer uh, when they were going in the civil rights era. And she's from Ruleville, Mississippi, and she loved Jesus. She loved scripture. She loved singing. She especially loved singing This Little Light of Mine. She got beaten in jail profoundly because she wanted the right to vote. And I, I love reading about her. And I, I think we brought her up on an earlier broadcast because one of the things she was was a serious, b- before it was cool to be pro-life, before Roe v. Wade ever got passed, she wanted to be sure that you knew that I, Fannie Lou Hamer, want to have babies. They sterilized me for another, she was in it for a whole nother operation and they made sure she'd never be able to have babies. She wanted babies. She adopted some finally, but she said, listen, if you're going to abort your child, don't do it. Bring them to Fannie Lou Hamer. I'll raise them for you. And I just think she's a profound pro-life voice before it was, again, important to be all that pro-life in this country. I say important. It wasn't such a contrary position back in the day. Thank God for voices like George Washington Carver, Frederick Douglass, Fannie Lou Hamer, and yes, for voices like Martin Luther King Jr. All right, friends. Hey, listen, one of the sponsors for our program is Teleos Press. Lots of really good books at Teleos Press. I want you to check them out at teleospress.com. Teleos is the Greek word for whole, complete, and perfect. It's spelled T-E-L-E-I-O-S. Teleospress.com. And one of the volumes you're going to be able to get there is the 5Q method of discipleship. It will teach you how to be a more serious disciple maker for Jesus. So check it out at teleospress.com. All right. So in just a moment, we're going to begin this Trapes Through Exodus. But what I'm going to encourage you to do is get your Bible and perhaps open it up the book of Exodus so you can follow along more in just a moment. All right, let's get to the book of Exodus now. And I'm excited about what all the 66 books of the Bible have to teach us about discipleship, kind of what we need to be and do to be all the people that Jesus wants us to be. But I'm really delighted right now to have one of my best best friends in here today, a gentleman named Steve Blakemore. It's Dr. Steve Blakemore, who teaches philosophy and uh, theology here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Steve, you've been here about as long as I have been, and I've been here 33 well, I'm a, I'm third, I'm twelve years shy of being here as long as you've been here. Man, that's still a long time. Yep, twenty one or twenty two years. <laughs> that's what I like. Twenty one or twenty two. Who really knows? <laughs> when you get past ten, you just start thinking, ah. Well, I'm I'm really confused because of uh, our COVID two years in a row. So yeah, I've yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. gone into a big fog. What was cool about that though, around here, if you remember, we didn't. Sh- we didn't slow down. We didn't shut down because we, we were doing largely Zoom classes. Which, by the way, if you're interested in going to seminary, hey, don't move. Stay right where you're at and enroll with us and we'll come to you by Zoom. And if you can't be in the live classes, you can actually take them by video later in the day. So pretty cool. But we didn't stop at all during COVID. No, it was quite something. Someone asked me how 
how my life was affected by all of the shutdowns and everything. And I said, well, in reality, not at all. Uh, <laughs> no uh, masking around here, no social distancing. Just We just kept puttering along, doing what we do. Yeah, and the amazing thing is nobody got seriously sick at all. Yeah, praise God for that. Okay, listen, you know what we're doing here, Steve. Uh, we are looking at the book of Exodus. Did Genesis last week with Matt Ayers. This week, I invited you to come in and say, let's let's talk through Exodus. You've been a pastor for a long time, so you've helped a lot of people with their walk with the Lord using Exodus and all the other books as well. So I'm excited about this. So if I were to ask you, give an executive summary of the book of Exodus for discipleship. That's what we're about here. You're going to have five points. I'm going to limit you to five. You don't get three. You don't get six. You get five, okay? <laughs> so I'm forcing you into a number here, but it's kind of fun to do it. And, uh, and so I'm going to ask you the number one thing it doesn't have to be number one as far as most important, but the first point you're going to help us out looking at the book of Exodus, the first point for robust discipleship in the year 2022 go. Well, I think that the most important thing in the book of Exodus, well, not the most important thing, but the foundational starting point when thinking about becoming what God wants you, wants his people to be is the reminder that walking with God, even beginning to obey God, learning the ways of God, is rooted in and starts with God's initiative mm. towards us. We are always simply being drawn by God into His goodness, into His grace, into fellowship with Him. Because when you look at Exodus 1-12, through 12, it's very obvious that God is Yahweh is going to send, call Moses and send him to Israel for the sake of redeeming his people. They've been praying, but God's not simply responding to their prayers. God's initiative began in the book of Genesis. So what's that have to do with discipleship today? Well, when we think about being a disciple, all of our discipleship has to be a response of gratitude, a response of this overwhelming sense of mercy shown us. Hmm. Discipleship doesn't become a duty. Discipleship becomes a joy uh, when we always remember that we are responding to the God who has taken the initiative hmm. to reach to us, to save us. And when times get in life, when maybe doing your devotional time or doing something that's hard for the Lord in your acts of mercy outwardly, that it, we just need to be reminded sometimes yes. of the greatness of mercy that has been shown to us. I think this is one of the things that Christians don't rehearse in their lives enough. Well, well, see if this relates. It may. Uh, you know, we used to take uh, guys out to the prison uh, to preach, that's how I did my discipleship groups. Let's go out to the abortion clinic or let's go out to the prison. When we were going out there, right before we got there, I'd always say, guys, we don't have to go in and start anything. God's been at work there all week long. Our job is to go in and join with him and continue in his work in these guys' lives. Well, I think that that's exactly, I think that's exactly true in the way to think about it, especially in, in terms of the concept of prevenient grace. Because God is always the initiator. And the word prevenient means a grace that simply that comes goes be before. That comes before we actually can exercise faith. It's a grace that enables us to recognize our need, 
It's a grace that enables us to desire something more than what we have experienced in life. And it's a grace that enables us then to yield ourselves to the Lord. Nobody's able to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps if God doesn't give them the grace to do it first. Exactly. Yeah, amen. Right. So that's that's the thing that I, when I look at Exodus, I'm profoundly touched by the reality that God, because of the promise he made to Abraham, I'm going to build your people and through your people, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. They've gone to, to, uh, to Egypt, you know, to escape famine. And, and they're they, going to stay in Egypt without God. Yes, exactly. And they're going to be, they would be just there, but God is keeping his promise and God is initiating. And that's, I really believe in my experience with people, we do lip service to this idea of God's initiating mercy in our lives, but we don't stop, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, to ponder back. Yep. And think about how his mercy has kept you, has deepened you, and, and his our utter reliance upon him. Yep, great stuff. Okay, discipleship point number one, remember grace going before, all right? Discipleship point number two, what do you got? Well, that the whole purpose of God's calling his people out of Egypt was not simply to relieve them from the onerous situation of being slaves. God's purpose that he gives to Moses is not go down there and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. God's purpose is Moses, go get my people and you bring them back to this mountain where I will meet them hmm. and I will bring to them a knowledge of myself. Hmm. And I, I think at oftentimes in the, in the Christian church, we have reduced salvation down to simply being forgiven of our sins, delivered from bad consequences or from eternal judgment. And we need to recall that deliverance out of something is always for the purpose of being brought into a deep and abiding union with a holy God. And that's Yahweh's serious discipleship of his people. The thing, the kinds of things that are happening at Mount Sinai. Exactly. I mean, the laws are being handed down. And yes. This is the new way of living. You had a way of living back in Egypt, but we're on a whole different trajectory now. And I think that we, um, we, I, I want to reiterate this point that for far too many Christians, they think of salvation as being forgiven hmm. and have you been are have you been saved? Well, there's a sense in which, yeah, I have been saved, my sins are forgiven, just like Israel had been brought out of Egypt and they were delivered when they crossed the Red Sea. But that was never the point. The point was to bring them into this relationship with them. And so for discipleship, then what that means is we recognize that the that the process of doing the things that disciples do is not simply a mechanical matter, but these are just the, the outlines or the, or the steps, or these are the things you do on the map mm. to grow closer to God, to become into a deeper fellowship with God, because ultimately that's what God wants from our lives. Interesting you say map, because a friend of ours has written a book on this. Uh, Stan Key has talked about the map. And he says, you know, you get across the, the Red Sea. First off, you're in Egypt, so you're, you're, you're imprisoned. 
Yep. Get across the Red Sea. That's baptism. Then you get into the school. <laughs> it's the desert school. Yeah. It's the Mount Sinai school. Pretty good stuff. Okay. So we're going through the book of Exodus and trying to discern what are the discipleship lessons we can learn. And we have with us today, Dr. Steve Blakemore from Wesley Biblical Seminary. Uh, point number three. Well, of course, the most obvious aspect of the book of Genesis is right in the middle of the book, which is God making covenant with his people. Yeah, you're talking about Exodus, right? In ec- yeah, in Exodus. What did I say? You said Genesis. That's Genesis. good. Genesis. Yeah, well, when I say Genesis, I always mean <laughs> I always mean Exodus. I just try it's to keep... It's the law. It's the Torah, for crying I Allah. just try to keep people on their toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're on our toes, man. So um, Exodus, right in the middle of the book of Exodus, chapter 20, you have this all of a sudden revelation mm. uh, of what God wants of his people. And people have fundamentally misunderstood the whole purpose of of the covenant that God makes with his people. He tells them in chapter 19, look what I've done for you. I brought you to myself. Now, if you'll be my people, I will be your God. And they say, yes, 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 we'll be your people. So already right there, the whole purpose of the covenant has nothing to do with becoming God's people. The purpose of the covenant and the laws are for the purpose of shaping their lives into the image of the God that they are going to begin to learn how to worship. Now, this is interesting. So they were made originally in Genesis. Let's get back to your book, Genesis, there, uh, <laughs> in the image of God. Now that image has been marred, has been broken. Yes. And here you have a serious path to making it whole again. Yes. A, the, a, a covenant yes. relationship with Yahweh. And when you think about, really, the relationship between God's promise to Abraham and what's going on in the book of Exodus. It's as though God says, in order to bless all the people of the earth, I am going to have to have a people who belong to me as a special treasure Hmm. and whose lives will begin to understand what my character is like. Because as they, all these things are revealed to them, they're getting these little snapshots of what God is like. So you don't lie because God is truthful. You don't commit adultery because God is faithful. You don't uh, commit murder because life is in God's hands. You don't steal because life, uh, because God respects, um, respects what he has created. I love this. You you and I both have a mutual friend, Bill Urey. And uh, I I wrote this catechism up, gave it to him, said, Hey, critique it for me. One of the things he he said, I said, what is the law of God? And that's just so, it's a commandment to be obeyed or or a commandment of God. It's a law to be obeyed. It's it's something to be obeyed. I wrote that down. How could Bill have a problem with that? And he, he, I think it's, I remember it. He took red ink to it. It (laughs) Irritates me to this day. He didn't red ink anyway. And he said, uh, no, uh, a law is a picture of who God is and a promise of what we can become. Now that, that all of a sudden you send, that's a different hermeneutic. That's a different exactly. way of looking at those laws, isn't it? Exactly. And so when you think about like the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and then you don't have a whole lot of laws that are spelled out in the book of Exodus, except regarding how to build the tabernacle and a few things like that. But those, those laws are really the, the revelation of God's law, if, if we want to put it that way. His, his instructions to us. It's really, it's really primarily for the sake of healing us. Hmm. We are fallen. We are broken. The image of God has been 
is something from which we have been alienated. Now, that's not the way we look at law, though, is it? No. Something that can heal us. Yes. It, and so it's giving us guidance. It's teaching us a new way to, to envision our lives. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay. Well, what does that mean? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It means, it doesn't mean like speaking badly. It means if you're going to bear my name on your life, you cannot let that be an empty exercise. And so this idea of God establishing covenant is for the purpose of really shaping our lives as his people. And when you think about the process of discipleship, leading a discipleship group, being in a discipleship group, being accountable to someone and being supportive of each other in the, in the journey, it ultimately is for the sake of being formed into the character of God, and we see his face in Jesus Christ. And this this stuff keeps coming up. I think a lot of people say, that's ah, Old Testament, that's law. I'm in now to a personal relationship with Jesus. Has nothing to do with that kind of stuff. What are you going to say to that? I'm going to say to them, well, first of all, the purpose of Jesus coming was to restore the image of God in us, not simply to forgive us of our sins, not simply so we could feel close to God, but it's to have us healed, restored, and become again what God always intended us to be. And therefore, if you think of law as instructions for guidance unto spiritual health, rather than a bunch of rules to keep in order to make sure you stay in line or please God, if you think about it in in the way I sense what's going on in the book of Exodus, because they're already his people, and now God's saying, all right, let me show you the way to live as my people. And the purpose is for wholeness in our lives as well as holiness, because holiness and wholeness go together uh, in the scripture. So could you say something like this? I mean, is this, a, is this, is this, does this work? All right, you got cancer in you. The law is get the cancer out. Yes. And so I, I was reading yesterday morning at 6 a.m. with my discipleship group, uh, Colossians 3. You're dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. If you have these things in you, they've got to die, right? And then it gets, and by the way, rid yourselves of the cancer of, not just put the word cancer of in there, but the cancer of anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene speech, uh, lying one to another. You got to get rid of those things that you might be healed. Exactly. That's a whole different way of looking at it. It's a whole different way of looking at it. And if you look at the book of Genesis and, and look at the covenant and when the, especially the Decalogue is given, and we'll, I know you'll be talking about the book of Leviticus next week, but when people look at all of those laws, whether it's Leviticus or Deuteronomy, we always think of them as people, people envision them entirely wrongly. They think of all of those things as part of a ladder that Israel was meant to climb up to get to closer to God. Do these things. And you'll be okay by me. Hmm. Instead, the law uh, uh, and the and all of God's law, and starting with the covenant in Mount Sinai, is not a ladder to climb up. It's guardrails as we journey through life, and it's the guardrails living within this way, becoming these kind of people, traveling down this highway. We will be led closer to God, and as we get closer to God, we will become more whole and more healthy in our lives, spiritually, uh, relationally, emotionally, uh, intellectually, psychologically, because that's what we're made for. We're made to, re to reflect 
the character and the way of God in our lives. We got to hustle along here, but we do want to make this point. Jesus comes along later and he doesn't say, hey, let's just do away with all those laws. No. He says, listen, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. Yes. And then he starts talking about various laws and they get tougher. Jesus doesn't loosen up on this stuff. Yes. He makes them tougher. He does make them tougher. And in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is beginning to recite some of to the people some of these um, uh, Mosaic Covenant laws, he takes it to a, a much a, a deeper level, and it's getting to the heart of the matter. He says, "You've had it. You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder.' But I tell you, if you are hatefully, mal- maliciously angry at your brother." internally, without any action at all, you're guilty. Wow. So we go from murder to anger, and he says, all right, yeah, don't murder. But listen, it's a lot deeper than that. And for you, I want you to get away from this bitter anger. Yeah, that's, all right. Discipleship point number four, what do we got? Well, in discipleship point number four, I think about especially, um, I think it's uh, Exodus 32 and 34, the whole golden calf incident. Hmm. And so what I would say is always remind, always be mindful in our lives of two things, God's patience and God's judgment. Yeah. That God is not an angry God looking to just find any reason whatsoever to be angry at us. God is patient. Uh and the golden calf incident, the fact that Israel is not just completely obliterated, right? Completely obliterated because of this unbelievable, stupidly heinous act of while Moses is on the mountain, they are down below worshiping an Egyptian fertility God. And what, so you know what happens. God says, God says to Moses, hey, those people you brought to me, man, they're not, they're not much, I don't want to have anything to do with them. And so there's two things about discipleship. A leader in a discipleship mm, thing good. needs to be continually interceding before God for the ones that you're trying to help grow into the image of Jesus Christ, because there will be struggles, there will be temptations, and they are going to fail. And the leader dare not ever give up because the intercession of the leader becomes crucial. Secondly, though, the intercession of the leader becomes crucial because God's God's heart is always to be merciful. And even those who were obliterated at the mountain, at the bottom of the mountain, they they were obliterated because they would not come over. They would not repent. They would not return. And so the patience of God, but also remembering that the, the holy judgment of God is always against our resistance, our unwillingness. And a key role for every leader is to be a true intercessor, not just telling people what to do, but carrying the burden of their spiritual maturity, their spiritual growth in your own heart and life. Fair to say, everybody needs a Moses, everybody needs a Paul, everybody needs a Jesus, a discipler that will pave the way, help correct, Yes. Rebuke, if necessary, bring into a deeper life. Good stuff, Steve. We're Steve Blakemore today. And of course, he teaches uh, theology and philosophy at Wesley Biblical Seminary. He's done so for 21 years. And he's coming now on to our fifth point of what we can learn from Exodus for discipleship. Now, remember, folks, I limit my friends to just five points. 
I think we could easily make 25 points if we wanted to. But your fifth point for discipleship from Exodus. That ultimately the whole purpose of, of our experience with God is to realize the greatness of and live in the wonder of God's glory. Mm. Because the book of Exodus ends with the phrase, after all of these instructions are given about how to build their tabernacle and how to approach God, it says, and the glory of the Lord descended and filled the temple. Right there, and the temple, and the, the tabernacle rather. And the tabernacle was meant to be right in the middle of the camp. So the glory of the Lord is our, is our goal, not what all we can do for, for God, not how we can be effective in ministry, not even how we can learn more and more about the Bible or about prayer. It's ultimately to experience deeply within our lives the glory of God. You and I both had uh, inductive Bible study courses <laughs> yeah. under the great Robert Traina kind of popularized inductive Bible study in America, I believe. And a lot of people lit their fire at his candle. Having said that, uh, I remember being in class with him one day. And of course, this was the whole thing. You'd figure out what the structural laws of Exodus was. You'd hand in your paper, then he'd tell you what they really are. <laughs> and yes. sometimes you get them right. And most of the time you didn't. But I remember him saying, there's a great climax in this last chapter of Exodus. And we're looking at it. We can't see it. We can't see it. We can't see it. It's, it's almost like he's looking at it like, you, you guys, come on. The glory of the Lord <laughs> fills the tabernacle. <laughs> that is a great climax yes. because they were imprisoned in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And now at the end of the book, what an incredible thing. And the, um, the, the, the whole struck the whole all that language about what the the tabernacle needs to look like and what the furniture needs to be and what the kind of what the geography of the tabernacle should be it's to teach us that coming into God's presence is never a casual thing mm. and we need to we need to be remember that when we have our discipleship groups that if Jesus really meant it when he said if two or three of you gather in my name there I am in the midst of them. And this is Jesus. Yes, is our friend. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is the one who loves us with an everlasting love. But Jesus is the holy son of God who is the Lord. And when we come together with one another in his presence, there should be a sense of care yes. for one another, a carefulness about the way we speak in his presence and an understanding that we are standing on holy ground, if his glory is there among two or three of us. Mm, awesome. 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 All right. Steve Blakemore on Exodus for discipleship. Thanks, Steve. It's been great to be with you, Matt. All right. It's a wrap. It's been an honor to have you listen to the life-changing discipleship podcast with Matt Friedemann. So check out our Facebook page, life-changing discipleship. And by the way, check out our books at amazon.com. Type in Matt Friedemann right there into the search engine at Amazon, and you're going to find out what's offered. And always, always to others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you that I thank you for listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Program today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, my dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon. <laughs>